are, again, that we can come together in the name of God with the excitement and the thrill in our heart to serve Jesus Christ our Lord and to do that in a way that not only honors and pleases Him, but to do that in a way that carries out and conducts the service in a way to be a blessing to all who are present. As surely as we come together tonight, we're again thankful for that opportunity. We look forward to the other events after the services this evening, so keep that in mind if you would. Uh, the, the goodies we have prepared in the back, and we'll look forward to a time of enjoying one another in just a little while later this evening. For this part of our service tonight, we're going to, as usual, cast a spotlight on a particular feature or aspect of the Word of God. And you may have noticed in the lesson text a moment ago that reference was made to two classes of individuals. I'd like to reread Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. And it'll not be difficult with that statement of classes of individuals to appreciate what the thrust of our lesson tonight will be. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. In this one verse, we have reference to not only one, but two classes of individuals. There were the Pharisees on the one hand, the Sadducees on the other. Tonight, let's take a brief journey and learn a little bit about these individuals. What did they believe? Let me prompt some of those questions by using this slide before us. There are many times as you and I come to the Bible, we read through passages or we read a particular verse and maybe a particular word occurs and we've heard it so often. Maybe even have, it, have seen it in reference so many times we pass right through or by it without recollecting with fullness the thrust of that word. We'll notice on this slide, the Pharisees and the Sadducees may well be words that fall into that category because those words occur often in the Bible. Who were these people? Where did they come from? What did they believe? How did Jesus feel about them? How did the early church respond to them? And on and on the questions may well go. This next slide is just a very simple attempt to set before all of us some additional details and features about these classes of individuals. You might start by noticing the frequency with which they occur. The word Pharisee, or its plural form, occurs 100 times in the New Testament. The word Sadducee, or again the plural form of it, occurs 14 times in the New Testament. So in other words, both of these references are reasonably frequent. Not only that, you may begin to appreciate this. From the context alone, it's clear that they each one refer to some kind of religious group. Individuals who were banded together by virtue of their given religious convictions and beliefs. But that immediately suggests the following. It's not difficult to begin to see they frequently gave issue to Jesus. That is to say, they often presented to Him matters that were troubling they often tried to catch Him in His words. They were more often than not very unwilling participants in following Him. They opposed Him more so than actually followed Him. In addition to that, you may notice that they are mentioned very early in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, the third chapter of the New Testament. I use that statement to prompt all of us to note this. That reference early in the book of Matthew highlights religious organizations that were already well-formed. They were already very much in existence. They were already thoroughly appreciative of a given status in that day and time. 
In other words, it wasn't they were just beginning to form the groups. They were already well established and had been for centuries. It is with that in mind. You might now note the following. Neither one of these classes is mentioned even once in the Old Testament. Not once. The Pharisees are never mentioned in the 39 Old Testament books and neither of the Sadducees. That immediately leads us to note this. If these groups were not mentioned at all in the Old Testament, and therefore it seems were it by, they were not even in existence, and yet they were mentioned early in the New Testament, how did they form? Where did they come from? What is it that prompted their development? I suppose if we have an appreciation of that, it may assist us as we encounter those passages wherein we see them. In fact, that will be our goal, our motivation for the lesson tonight. And so let's close that slide then by noting, where did these groups come from? Well, as you give that thought with me, let's turn the slide and proceed on our study. You'll notice that we must give some appreciation to this. What is it that happened? in those years between when the Old Testament ended and when the New Testament began. A little chronology might be of assistance to us. The book of Malachi is the 39th and last book of the Old Testament. That book of Malachi was written about 430 B.C. In other words, roughly 430 years prior to the birth of Jesus, that last Old Testament book was written. Now, as you and I come to the life and times of Jesus, He again was born at about 4 B.C. And hence, about 425 years passed between the writing of the book of Malachi and the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That intervening 425 years, those were some interesting times for Jews. Interesting times for those of Hebrew background. So much so that there actually are apocryphal books that somebody wrote trying to fill in details about those years. Let me simply ask you to reflect with me to these thoughts. I think the Old Testament will aid us rather notably to help place the life and times of what happened in those 400 and so years. The children of Israel had gone into Babylon. They spent 70 years there. But the Old Testament is quick to inform us that although they had gone to Babylon due to their sinfulness and due to their failure to obey God, God did preserve a remnant. He told Ezekiel very carefully, I'm going to bring a remnant back. And He did. After the 70 years were expired under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra, groups came back to the Judean area. They rebuilt Jerusalem's walls. They, in fact, reinstituted the, the worship by rebuilding the temple. They did some wonderful things, and the Old Testament highlights them. But at this point, you might notice, Ezra formed a vital part in that history. As Ezra did this, he reestablished the proper worship of God. He lifted high the banner of the Word of God, for he was a ready scribe. It is with that in mind, could I ask you to notice at the bottom, there were several influences then that began to develop and work in those years after they returned. There were governmental policies. What kind of government began to be put in place and how did that impact their worship and their religious life? Secondly, how did they interpret the Old Testament and did they remain faithful to it? Thirdly, applying the Scriptures to daily life. 
How do I take this passage that perhaps Moses had written a thousand years earlier and apply it to life in that day and time? As you keep all that in mind, let's now simply say this. There began to develop religious groups who had different perspectives in the answer to some of those questions. As those groups developed, two of them were the very ones that you and I are about to study in some detail tonight. This next slide begins by highlighting the central issue for any Jew. You and I know that those that were made Jews were so because of the declaration of the Word of God. The first five books of the Old Testament were central, absolutely vital to anyone who would call him or herself a Jew. Now, those first five books were Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those books, one finds the law of Moses given, to be sure, but also a whole set of laws and statutes and regulations detailing in so many ways the various features and aspects of life. It is with that in mind. As you think about those first five books, they're going to be key for some of our discussion in a moment. How do you look upon them? First of all, you and I know well, God gave the material of those books, but Moses wrote it down. It's not that it was ever Moses' idea. It came from God. Notice in Exodus 24.4 and Deuteronomy 31.9, it's explicitly said that Moses wrote these things and they were matters and regulations from God. In fact, even the Son of God agreed with the same thought. Jesus Himself said in John 5, in the closing verses of that chapter, that Moses is the one who wrote those things with messages given by God. It is to that that we might then add the following. Here is a rather crucial point. You and I have access to those first five books. We can still read them easily. But there came to develop a viewpoint in the mind of some that asserted that not only did God give that law that Moses wrote down, but that He also gave, as I've tried to write it here, an oral law. That is, He gave Moses some information that Moses didn't write down. And this oral information was key and critical for the proper understanding of what was written. Now that oral law, it came to be believed, was passed down from one generation to the next, as individuals, fathers or others, told those things to their children. But it was an oral law. It was separate apart from the written one. Now that oral law leads us to appreciate there are some who come to believe that it actually eventually was written down, at least much of that oral law, in a writing, a document known as the Mishnah, or at least the first, uh, first little bit of the Talmud, which is known as the Mishnah. Isn't it interesting that in Matthew 15, 2, at least at one point in the New Testament, there is a reference, albeit a brief one, to the possibility in the mind of some of this oral law. And in a moment, we're going to ask what Jesus think about it. Did Jesus affirm that there really was a law in addition to the written one that was binding and that was important and that God expected individuals to know? As you and I close that slide, the view that we have listed already toward that oral law and the Scriptures as a whole were going to be key in the appreciation of these groups that formed. Now, with that in mind, let's proceed to look in some detail at the Sadducees. 
when you and I encounter this group known as the Sadducees, we again see them on a number of occasions in the New Testament. And although the word occurs 14 times, references to the group occur quite a bit more than that, especially in the gospel accounts. Note some of these comments. The Sadducees maintained an exceedingly rigid and strict adherence to the five first books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They, in fact, gave those such high priority that, quite frankly, they gave much less significance to the later Old Testament books. Oh, it's not that they would discount the book of Psalms or they would discount the book of Proverbs. It's just that those had a little bit less significance and those were not nearly as highly to be regarded as those first five books. Now, keeping that thought in mind, notice this group rejected completely the oral law. Remember, in those intervening years, there were some groups that began to believe in the reality of the oral law. The Sadducees did not think so. They rejected it completely. The only law they affirmed that God ever gave was that law that Moses wrote. There was no law that that Mishnah would record that was on equal par with it. Now that distinction is going to be a very vital one. Notice what else might be said. These rejected everything that they perceived was not supported by and consistently interpreted with those first five books. In other words, even if it was found somewhere in the Old Testament, if it was not found in those five books, if it wasn't lifted high and overwhelmingly supported, they would reject it. Now, with that in mind, I suppose you can begin to note that list. As you think about the first five books of the Old Testament, what about the doctrine of the resurrection? Now, you and I almost immediately, if someone were to ask us, what do you know about the Sadducees? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. And we get all of that directly out of the New Testament. And the reason they felt that way is they could not find the evidence for it in the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, doesn't this also highlight rather strongly one conversation that they had with Jesus in Matthew 22? Remember on that occasion, it was the Sadducees who came to Jesus and who told Him about a man who in fact had six brothers. The first one had married a wife, he died, she married the second brother, and that continued through all seven brothers. And their question for Jesus was this, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now, again, here was a group that didn't believe in the resurrection. And they thought they'd stump Jesus with this record, this, this question. And I'm sure all of us remember what He said. Ye do greatly err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Now, the Scriptures to which Jesus referred was the very documents that they thought were so very special. Because Jesus quoted right out of the book of Exodus... Right out of the book they claim to ultimately believe in, but you see they hadn't interpreted it properly and thoroughly. As you and I begin to think about the Sadducees, notice what else. They didn't believe in demons, nor did they believe in the issues concerning the end of time. Now, one by one, when you and I think back through the first five books of the Old Testament, we can understand they didn't find all the things of God in those books. It came later. 
Later, wasn't it true in the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, we learn much about the features concerning the resurrection. And later in the days of Daniel and Zechariah, we learn much about the features of the end of time. But the Sadducees looked with much less respect and interest, of course, on those latter books. You'll note it no direct next on the slide. This group is often placed in an opposition to the Pharisees. In fact, you might remember that perhaps one almost humorous presentation is found in Acts 23. It was in that chapter that Paul, of course, was being questioned by the authorities of that day. And yet, as Paul began to appreciate the audience before whom he stood, he perceived, the text says, that part of them were Sadducees and part of them were Pharisees. And being the brilliant man that he was, Paul immediately raised the issue of the resurrection and then left them to fight it out. They forgot Paul was even anywhere around and began to fight one with the other, arguing about the reality or failure thereof of the resurrection. You can begin to see how that that opposition then was a critical matter that raised itself not only in the life of Jesus, but even Paul dealt with it, and sometimes very skillfully. Beyond that additional statement, what else might we say about these Sadducees? I've tried to write it this way. They were rather tolerant in the application of Moses' law to the various avenues and specifics of life. In other words, their toleration would allow many differing viewpoints and opinions, and not only that. For them, the greatest thing of all was absolute fidelity to that through the first five books, and expressly the priestly system. Now, you and I remember one of the things we find in those first five books is God established priesthood. Now, this was specifically the, the, the Levitical one. God first called Aaron, the brother of Moses, to be the first high priest. And following the days and times thereafter, it would be his successor. And the Levitical priesthood was very thoroughly established. The Sadducees placed a great deal of emphasis on the priesthood. It is to that, I might ask you to note this. With their history associated with the priesthood and all the money and the funding that would funnel through the temple, the Sadducees in many cases tended to be wealthy. They tended to be the, shall we say, the higher echelon of society. That wealth and that kind of arrogance and viewpoint leads me to ask you to note this. Jesus rebuked them several times. Their viewpoint was an error. Their perspective was not consistent with the Word of God. I mentioned one of them a moment ago in Matthew 22. We could also add the one in Matthew 16. That chapter highlights the fact there was a discussion about the signs of the times. Jesus rebuked them. You can look at the signs of the weather and tell what the weather is going to be like, but you can't look at the signs and the characteristics the Lord has revealed and make conclusions about this generation. The Lord was very stern with them on that occasion. It might well be as we close that slide. We now begin to appreciate this. This group, the Sadducees, reached a very strong and powerful heyday in those years when the priesthood was so vibrant. But there was going to come a time, and it happened, as you can see, in A.D. 70, when the Roman armies overran Jerusalem and destroyed it. 
As a part of that destruction, they destroyed the temple. That's where the priesthood, in fact, resided. It's where they carried out their duties without a priesthood. The Sadducees rather quickly ceased to exist. And therefore, shortly after A.D. 70, there were no more Sadducees. That group had reached its crescendo and had fallen away after Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, keeping that in mind, we've learned at least a little about those Sadducees. What about the Pharisees? That group that is also, in fact, often mentioned, and by name they're even mentioned more often. Let's discuss them for the next few moments. Now remember, each one of these groups arose in that period of time between when the Old Testament ended and when the New Testament began. During that 400 and so years, these groups that had differing ideas about how to appreciate the priesthood, differing ideas about the oral law, differing ideas about how one should look upon the Old Testament Scriptures. We've at least seen the Sadducees. Now let's look at this one. The Pharisees primary concern was ever maintaining a separateness and a fidelity to the things of God, separation from society. One of the things that we learn from history is when Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world and in fact spread Greek civilization, the Pharisees were of a viewpoint, we must remain separate because we are a peculiar people. We must be devoted and dedicated to God. We must be ever true to that, and that means we must be distinct and different. The Pharisees took that very seriously. You might even begin to recall several occasions when they rather strongly reprimanded Jesus. You eat with sinners. If only He knew who's touching Him. Remember that scene when the woman who'd had the issue of blood? And on other occasions when He allowed the woman to, to, you know, to pour the alabaster box of ointment upon Him? They were amazed that this unclean woman, this person, would be allowed to touch this special prophet. You see, they thought that separateness had to extend to every single avenue and aspect of life. Notice, their viewpoint toward the Old Testament was a bit different. It's true that they highly regarded the first five books, but they looked upon the remainder of the Old Testament, the other 34 books as well, as being of God. And they didn't put them in a lesser category. For them, Psalms and Zechariah and all the other books were just as needful, just as inspired, and just as important as those first five books. Now may I say to that, you and I would wholeheartedly agree. The Word of God. Do you ever remember a time when Jesus, in fact, made a distinction that some books in the Old Testament are more inspired than others? Jesus never said that. There were times He quoted from Psalms, just as there were times He quoted from Genesis. In Matthew 19, remember, He said, Have you not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and quoted from Genesis 2? On other occasions, as I mentioned, as in Matthew chapter 21, He quoted directly out of Psalm 110. Maybe you and I can then appreciate it's not that Jesus made a distinction and looked upon some of the books as lesser significant than others. Isn't it rather fascinating then to notice the Pharisees, at least in that viewpoint, had things more correct. At this point, we might at least interject the following. 
Isn't it true that there are times today when individuals try to make a distinction? Have you ever encountered someone who says, those words in red in your Bible, those ones purportedly the very words of Jesus, they're more important than what Paul said or what Peter affirmed or what James wrote. And to that you and I would quickly say, not so. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And isn't it so that that statement, all Scripture, is of course used later even to refer to the writings of Paul, according to 2 Peter 3, verses 15 to 17. And therefore you and I begin to appreciate we are very unwise if we distinguish things in the Word of God and look lesserly upon some portions of it. All of it God gave us. Let's look at the next idea. The Pharisees accepted that oral law. And we said earlier the Sadducees rejected it. They looked upon the first five books only as that which God gave. The Pharisees said in addition to that... There was this oral law that God gave to Moses that he, in fact, transmitted orally to the generations following him. Because of that, there was a whole set of consequences, not the least of which was this. Those oral laws to which the Pharisees gave credence, they then made long and extensive listings that, quite frankly, were nothing but additions to the Word of God. We've discussed it several times in our Bible classes, but the question could be asked, it's true that God said on the fourth day, or rather in the fourth of the Ten Commandments, you're supposed to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and that meant no work. Question, what constitutes work? The Old Testament has some descriptive identifiers, but the Pharisees greatly extended that list. Certain things fell into the category, certain things didn't. And entire volumes ended up being written. Can you begin to appreciate how that Jesus on one occasion made reference to this fact? When it comes to the Pharisees and the ideas that they have in mind, you make sure to keep in mind what they say, but you realize they're not going to do what they say. Matthew chapter 23. It might well be as you and I add to those things. These Pharisees fully accepted the resurrection. They believed in demons. They believed in angels. They believed in life after death. They understood the resurrection. You'll notice all those things. They had a much clearer viewpoint toward many of them than Sadducees did. It is to that we might add this. As you begin to appreciate these distinctions, you can now see why when Paul raised the question that he did, in Acts 23, they ended up basically entering into a debate one with the other and even forgot about the whole issue of Paul. Amazingly enough, because of that oral tradition, those oral laws, they regarded that oral law just as important as the written one. And therefore, they expected people to be faithful to those oral traditions. Now, please listen to, to, to what I said. They lifted the traditions of men, what the elders taught, as equal to the Scriptures. That's dangerous, and that's wrong. The traditions of men are only that, they're traditions. 
when you and I give appreciation to even things in our worship that involves traditions. You and I, on Sunday mornings, we choose to have two songs and a prayer and then another song and then the lesson. What if we had three songs? What if we had no songs before the sermon? You see, there are certain things that fall in the realm of tradition. If you and I then seek to bind merely those traditions onto another congregation and make conclusion that congregation's unfaithful or that congregation's falling into apostasy because they don't do it our way, did you see we have erred in a very similar way to what the Pharisees did? Isn't it true that as you think about the attempt to bind merely the traditions of men, those kind of statements lead us to even recall in Mark 7, verses 1 and following, their appreciation of tradition even extended to the washing of hands. You can recollect with me how that developed. There was an occasion when those who watched made accusation to Jesus, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Now nowhere in the Old Testament does it give commandment that you must do that. Now, one might argue based on health reasons, it'd be a good idea to wash your hands, but it's not a command of God. And yet, they were binding that as an absolute law and using that to, in fact, condemn others who chose not to do it. Now, that kind of behavior was as wrong then as it is now. When one congregation then takes what's mere tradition, what's merely the way that they have done things, and tries to use that and bind it as a requirement on other congregations, that not only is a matter of error, it's a sinful thing. It might well be. You and I can remember Jesus had many things to say to the Pharisees by way of rebuke. Several times He directly chastised them. In Matthew chapter 23 is no doubt the most direct one. Through a very lengthy presentation of that chapter, Jesus pronounced not one, not two, but seven woes upon the Pharisees. The word woe, of course, highlighted something that was exceedingly difficult in the sense that it was not consistent with the things of God. Woe to you, Pharisees. And you might remember, He even likened them to whited sepulchers. On the outside, you look very presentable, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. In the same chapter... He highlighted that these Pharisees were individuals that they go out and seek after followers, but you make a more twice-fold a child of the devil than you are. Now that's strong language. That's very, very direct. He accused them directly. You take your followers and turn them into being a child of the devil even more so than you are. Now when you and I reflect on these Pharisees, you'll notice... Several times, there are additional statements in the Bible that lead us to think about them. In Luke 18, for example, Jesus told this statement that likened a publican to a Pharisee. Now, you recall with me how it went. The Pharisee went to the place of prayer and he prayed, I thank thee that I'm not like that publican. I fast twice. I take care of the commandments that you've given me. But in contrast, Jesus, in reference to the publican, said, in humility and in a very, very sincere tone, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, which one do you suppose went down to his house justified? Clearly the lesson was this. The attitude and the presentation of the publican was much more acceptable than the Pharisee. 
Not only that, the Pharisees loved to be in positions where others could watch their supposed piousness. They loved the long prayers that they'd pray in public, and they always prayed in a place where others could hear it. Did Jesus say in Matthew 6, if that's the only reason you're praying, then you've got your reward here already. It casts a strong spotlight on the Pharisees, although they had some things right. Their perspective, too, was greatly amiss in so many ways. It might be that you and I can close that slide like this. What happened when Jerusalem was destroyed? We noted a moment ago that the Sadducees basically ceased to exist. The priesthood was gone. That thing that held them together, the temple in Jerusalem, was no longer. The Pharisees were much better able to adapt after Jerusalem was destroyed. Remember, they weren't as tied to the priesthood as the Sadducees were. They again could adapt more readily and more easily. Over time, they were simply amalgamated into the other appreciations, and that group <clears throat> is such that the name really didn't seem to last all that long, but the perspectives, it seems, were able to, to continue onward. No wonder then you and I might say, those people on earth today that claim to be Jews basically are Pharisees. They basically are those individuals who again adopt and look upon the Old Testament in the ways that the Pharisees did. And they appreciate the features and aspects of that oral law in most cases the same way they did. All of that perhaps brings us to a point of conclusion. As we've thought tonight about these two groups, let's make a few summary statements concerning them. We've learned that they arose during that period of time between the Testaments, between the Old and New Testaments. But inasmuch as they began then, much of that which followed was predicated on their viewpoint toward the Old Testament Scriptures and the existence or lack thereof of that oral law. By the time we arrive at the New Testament, each of these groups was not only well in existence, but their basic beliefs was well founded. For that reason, Jesus often contended with each one of them. And those contentions lead me to summarize much of what we've stated like this. The Sadducees made an attempt to hold exclusively to what was written. On the other hand, the Pharisees accepted the oral law. Secondly, we are urged to appreciate the Pharisees did at least strive to maintain purity in life. Sadducees, not so much. You and I today know that we lift high the written Word of God, just like Jesus did. And we too strive for purity in our life, just like the New Testament demands of us. That purity is highlighted, perhaps, in a way that we can cling to these final two statements. Those Sadducees, they didn't cling to all that God had written. They again lifted high some books and basically ignored others. May we never be guilty of that. Today, 27 books of the New Testament, those 39 in the Old, and all of them are the Word of God. And finally, the Pharisees elevated human tradition too much. May we be wiser than that, understanding that's not the law of heaven. Tonight, as we've looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I trust that the background will be better suited to assist us as we look at places that those two references occur. 
whenever Jesus encounters them, we'll have a keener idea as we read those passages of understanding the background. Isn't it true in Matthew 19? It's the background of the Pharisees that helps us even appreciate Jesus' discussion about marriage and divorce. The Pharisees were arguing about it. Why? Because they elevated too high human tradition. May you and I consider what saith the Lord. What saith the Scriptures? Tonight the plan of salvation and the features of the church have both been set out for us. And aren't we thankful for God's instruction? Knowing that we can be obedient thereto and proceed through this life with assurance and confidence that that is the will of God. And we aren't basing it on merely human tradition in any way. Tonight, if there would be anyone in the audience, and your life is not as it ought to be, maybe you've never become a Christian, you can take care of that tonight as you allow the God of heaven to forgive you in the act of baptism. You contact His blood as you follow belief and repentance and confession. What a wonderful event it is to proceed to observe someone immersed into Christ. If you become a Christian, though, but things are not as they ought to be. Maybe your life is more like that of the Laodiceans. You become to trust in yourself and not trust in God. You realize that that's a fatal mistake. And the Laodiceans were told, if you don't repent, I'm going to take your candlestick. Tonight, if you find yourself in a position like that, we'd be honored to pray to God on your behalf, and we would love to do it. We would only ask that you certainly follow the dictates of the Word of God. You need to repent of anything. Of course, if it's of a public character, let brethren know that you're making a change in mind and a change in heart. As you make that confession, God will forgive upon our approach to Him in prayer. And tonight, we would urge you to do that at once. A hymn of encouragement has been chosen. We'd like to use this opportunity as a convenient one and invite one and all to come and do it now. If you need to do that, while together we stand and while we sing.